This past week, Friday night actually, I was, I was up late kind of finishing up some notes here on this up till a little bit after midnight and then I was, fell asleep watching House Hunters International. Yeah, yeah. Seems to be the rage now. I don't know. Woke up at like four in the morning. That was pathetic. Sitting on the couch. So uh, finally went back to the bed. That's the first time I've slept past one on the couch or something. Got to the bed. It, I mean, my sleep was all messed up. I'm supposed to get up, take my daughter to a cross-country practice. But I was sound asleep. So she comes in to wake me up. And uh, she's standing over me. And she's trying to figure out how to wake her father up. And so she reaches out and she gently touches my arm just real lightly. And you've ever had that moment where you're asleep And you now have a sense that there is a being in the room over you. Do you know what I'm talking about? And you're like, and you get this jolting wake up. And I'm looking at her and she's like, it's okay. I'm just wondering if you're taking me to cross country. Like, yeah, I am. What time is it? It's time to go. Okay, I'll get ready. Right? And I'm starting to jump out of bed. Wake up call. Uh, That's a little bit of what we're looking at today as we go to Revelation chapter 20. We are in a series called The Compelling King. The Compelling King. What's so great about Jesus Christ? Like, why are we worshiping? Why do we look to him? Why is he to be honored and glorified? That's what we've been looking at in this series, Compelling King. And today we're going to be touching on it in Revelation chapter 20. You know, we're just going to throw a slide up here real quickly. Uh, It's just talking a little bit about the flow. And uh, so notice we start on the far left and and, uh, we've talked about this over the last weeks, this rising action and falling action and the climax. These are literary terms, right? And so if you go to the Bible and use it as a story, we will learn a story about our king. And that starts with him as creator down in the bottom left exposition, right? It's the introduction of he creates in perfection. He's got a plan. Yes, it unwinds with man's will. He doesn't lose his sovereignty in it, but he works with us, that creating king. He then goes to being a preparing and a serving king throughout the Old Testament into the early gospels as he's showing us who he is, how he's going to work with us, what we should expect of him. What is his holiness? What is this replacement payment concept, right? We see it in Exodus 12 and throughout the law. Then he comes a sacrificial king and we see him absolutely giving his life once and for all, for all of us. The sacrificing king, the turning point to the story. There's now a way for us to be restored back to him. Then the interceding king, and that's really where we're at today. We're experiencing him as the interceding king, sitting on the throne at the right hand of God the Father, and literally interceding as your advocate and mine, if you trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior. That's where we are today, with the interceding king. Two weeks ago, we talked about the coming king, or last week, the coming king with Revelation 19, and we talked about his reign and his rule, his authority and his power as he climbs on this white horse, which means... All right, that was pretty good on the uptake. The white horse means victory. Absolute guarantee as he's coming. The coming king. It's going to be the end of that interceding stage. And it's the beginning of him reigning. And that's where we're starting today is with the reigning king. Revelation chapter 20, okay? So as you're turning there and getting ready, we got the ushers coming forward. They got Bibles in their hands. If you don't have one, just raise your hand and we'll get one to you. We are going to walk through Revelation 20 verse by verse, okay? So just raise your hand to get their attention. Before we start into it, let me just set the stage. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. What is this reigning kingdom going to look like? For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince 
of peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. It's a kingdom of peace and of justice and of righteousness. So as we go into Revelation 20 today, that's what we're going to be looking for. We're literally going to be watching for how his kingdom is a kingdom with justice and peace and righteousness. So let's get started. First point, justice. Christ will reign for a thousand years and he will call us to help rule. Christ will reign for a thousand years and he will call us to help rule. So start in Revelation 20. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven and holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. So let's just dive in. Then I saw. It's actually a word that starts in the Greek, a simple word, the word chi. Sometimes it means and, but it definitely means you're putting things together. You're accumulating these things together. And when you're talking about it in a narrative story and you're using it, it means this and then the next thing and then the next thing. It's this idea of sequential events occurring and they're being stacked together. So this chapter, Revelation 20, is attached to the end of Revelation 19. We have him coming as reigning king. First, he's coming to bring authority and punishment. That was Revelation 19 as we looked last week. And this week now as king over the millennial kingdom. Hang on to that thought. You're going to need it in just a second. But it is connective, that word then. It is sequential, that word then. Keep it in mind, okay? Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven. How many angels? One. One angel coming down. Behold, he was holding in his hand two things. What was he holding in his hand? A key and, and a chain. He's prepared. He's got a key to the bottomless pit and he's got a chain. What kind of chain? A great chain. Not just any old chain. This is a big bad chain, right? This chain is going to be meant to hold Satan and tie him down for a long pick in time. He's got a key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. The key to the bottomless pit. We've heard that phrase before, bottomless pit. It's in Jude chapter or verse 6. It talks about these evil angels who have done their own thing. They kind of broke out. They basically went way over the line. And God said, enough to the temporary holding cell. The bottomless pit. That's the same bottomless pit. It says that he's got the key to that bottomless pit. And he's got a great chain. And he, this one angel seized Satan and there's four names for him there. Let's walk through them dragon ancient serpent devil and Satan the dragon basically it means ferocious destroyer it's used 12 times in the book of Revelation and every time not very good things happen when the dragon is described okay big bad mean destroyer that's what we're supposed to get when we see the name dragon but the next one says ancient serpent. It's a tie back to the Garden of Eden. That first moment when Eve is dealing with Satan. 
and he's whispering deception. And he's whispering lies. And he's challenging the position of God Almighty. The ancient serpent, the original liar. The beginning of evil. And then it says, who is the devil? It means accuser and slanderer. It means talking ill of someone. It's not even true. That's what slander is. I'm saying things and they're not even real about the person, but they're bad. And I say them to tear them down. The accuser, to literally rip on people for where they're at. Maybe it's even appropriate, but the accusing is saying, you deserve punishment. Bring it on them. That's who he is. The accuser and the slanderer. Hey, just a little side thought for a moment. Maybe this is why God's got such a problem with slander and gossip in the church. Be careful. Let's not actually be the hands and feet of Satan with the way we use our mouth. Just a little side thought. Notice it says after it, who is the devil and Satan? That word means adversary. He's against us. We have chosen Jesus Christ as our King of kings and Lord of lords. We are literally following him and Satan is like, then I'm not with you, right? I'm against you. I'm your adversary. In fact, I hate where you're at. But newsflash, it's not just those who are following Christ that he hates. It's every being everywhere because everyone threatens his existence as being on top. Satan hates, period. Welcome to your adversary, the devil. Those four names, the angel, the singular angel, seized. And he threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him. He just threw him in. One guy threw him in, right? Let's keep this in mind. Often we think of Satan and we think, big, bad, vast, can't be competed with. And, and when compared to me, that's not untrue. Much bigger than me. But we're talking about the fact that he's just a created being. In fact, God simply spoke him into existence and could simply speak him out of existence at any point in time. He spoke an angel into existence who was just as big and bad and, in fact, more authority and power with him. And he doesn't even get a full narrative sentence to describe how he takes him. He just seizes him. It's done. In. And we're over. And then it says, he shut it up, the bottomless pit, and he sealed it, okay? I kind of picture this like the movie Get Smart. You know, at the beginning when he's walking in and like all those doors are opening up, you know what I'm talking about? And everything's opening and, he's, and then he walks in behind and he drops a piece of paper and then he's too late and the doors start closing down on him, right? It's all those doors closing down. It's, all, it's saying he is absolutely locked up tight. He is chained. He is shut in. He is sealed. He is held in check. From doing what? Glad you asked. It says that Satan is bound and there for a thousand years he was thrown into this pit, shut it, sealed it, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. We'll get to the why in just a second. A thousand years. How long is he locked up for? A thousand years. A thousand years. Thousand years, thousand years, thousand years, thousand years. It says it six times in very uh, few short number of verses here that this duration will last a thousand years. A thousand years. Have I said it enough? Okay. It's a thousand years. Okay. When it says a thousand years, maybe it means 
thousand years. Okay. We'll get to that in just a second too. Notice it says, Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. I saw thrones. Here's what we're supposed to say when we hear that. Like, yes, the kingdom is coming. Finally, we've got some ruling going on, man. Good deal of thrones. All right, tell me a little more about the kingdom. Like, that's the setup for this, okay? So in order to answer some of the questions that are going to come up as we walk through these verses, we're going to need a little bit of a timeline. So let's throw a timeline up here. I wanted to get a visual up. So we're going to walk through this real quickly. Don't worry, it's not daunting, okay? So on the far right, you see what it says? First heaven, first earth, right? That's like in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, right? It's Genesis 1. Then the next step was the Old Testament age, okay? And that was basically Genesis to Malachi. That's what was going on. We got people believing. We hear Romans chapter 4, it says that Abraham believed God. It was counted unto him for righteousness. We had people coming to faith in the Old Testament, right? And then we've got the church age where we've got people coming to faith in the New Testament, Now, look at the first coming there. You see that first arrow? That was when Jesus Christ came as lamb, serving. We talked about that, right? He was the serving and sacrificial king. That was that first coming. And at that point, we have a replacement payment made available for you and for me. His blood shed for us. Him risen from the dead and ascended into heaven. That's the first coming. And then in the church age, our job is simply this. Get some worshipers, right? Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 to 20. Make disciples. We better be bringing people together and getting more and more people to be worshiping him. That's our job in that church age. Okay, now you notice there's a phrase there, rapture. We're going to talk about that in just a second. Tribulation. What is that? These are the key words we need to hear. Rapture, tribulation, millennium. Let's make sure we get them down a little bit. Okay, so the tribulation, seven years long. It's basically Revelation 6 to Revelation 18. It's also described in Daniel. It's, an, it's a, a seven-year period of time, and it's not a good time. A lot, of, a lot of evil goes on, and a lot of nasty goes on, and then God unleashes his wrath. And some of you are like, hang on, I know the tribulation. First three and a half years are actually pretty good. Well, yeah, deceptively good. It, it, winning over minds and souls to trust so that things can go completely awry. That's the tribulation. It's the end of the church age. It's closing it all out with seven years of everything evil running amok. Okay, that's what we have going on in the tribulation. And that ends, the tribulation closes with the second coming of Jesus Christ. Revelation 19, what we looked at last week. Revelation 19 is that arrow, the second coming. And that's really important we kind of grasp that timeline. Okay, now once we grasp that, you see the millennium that's next? What does that word millennium mean? Mill means a thousand, annum means years, thousand years. Hey, I've heard that before. Yeah, so that's the millennial kingdom, okay? It comes after his second coming, and then we'll talk about those two pieces at the end. Just keep this timeline up for a while. People are going to need to be absorbing it, I'm sure. Some of you are like, that's a lot to write down. It's okay, we'll get to it piece by piece here, okay? The rapture, let's just talk about that for a second. This is described in 1 Thessalonians 4. It says that Jesus Christ comes and then we will meet him in the clouds. There will be this blast of a trumpet, this absolute awesomeness as every believer, both dead in Christ and alive in Christ, is captured up to meet him in the air. We literally get to go meet him in the air. The dead in Christ rise first. Okay, it says that in 1 Thessalonians 4. So their bodies go zooming up and they're glorified and they're immediately met with their souls that have already been with him in heaven. So the souls are now met with the body and they're glorified and there you go. 
and then the living believers still on the earth, then they're captured up right away after it. It says 1 Corinthians 15 in the twinkling of an eye. Bam! You're caught up with them. Glorified body. So all believers, see that line over there where the rapture's going up? Basically everybody up to that point, believers, living or dead, captured up into heaven with him, glorified bodies, hanging out with Christ, waiting for the second coming when he says, hey, everybody find a white horse. We're going on a ride. Right? And that's Revelation 19 from last week. So that's what we're talking about. Now notice I put the rapture, well, at the front of the tribulation. And some of you are like, hang on. Isn't this a little argumentative? And I'm just going to tell you this. There are some that take a position that it's at the beginning. They call it pre-trib rapture. There's some that say it's in the middle, mid-trib, even a little after middle, pre-wrath. Maybe at the end, post-trib. Why are there so many arguments? Because 1 Thessalonians 4 doesn't say when. It says what. It describes it, but it doesn't say when it occurs. Why doesn't it describe when it occurs? Wouldn't that have been a nice thing to explain? And the answer is because he was trying to describe something completely different. The people were concerned about whether they'd even see their loved ones again. And he described this event and said, just hang on. There's going to be an unbelievable moment where the dead in Christ rise and we're coming after them and glorified bodies and we're all hanging out together and don't worry, you're going to see your loved ones again. See, the why wasn't as important there or the when wasn't as important there. What was important is that it's happening. It's going to happen. So because it doesn't describe the time, there's a little bit of unclarity. I will say, some say middle, some say beginning, some say end. I put it at the beginning here. I probably land there myself at the moment. If you ask me tomorrow, I may not. But tomorrow, today, I land there, okay? I'm leaning there. Why? I've got a couple of positions for why. I can give them to you in five seconds. I'll just say this. There's a statement that says that the restrainer will be removed and then the tribulation. And I don't know what kind of restrainer it would take other than God himself that would hold back all of the evil in the world. And if the Holy Spirit's removed, then the church is removed. And if the church is removed, the rapture just occurred. So that's one piece. I'm willing to be worked on things and grow in my understanding of that scripture, okay? But that's where I stand right now. So I throw it there. Just so you know, though, there is a rapture. It does occur, and it absolutely occurs before the second coming. Whether it's beginning, middle, or end of the tribulation, absolutely before the second coming, 100%. Going up, we're getting glorified, we're meeting with Christ, and he's handing out some horses. And we're coming for a ride, and he's going to reign as king. Okay? Let's make sure we grasp that. Now we come riding down, absolutely worshiping him and celebrating as he, the one with the sword coming out of his mouth, the word that gets spoken and ends it all, takes over the millennial kingdom. And now we're heading into the thousand-year reign. Everybody got it? Kind of? I need some nodding heads. Do we got it? Okay. So we got a little bit of it. Let's make sure we now step through this. It says, Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Who in the world was committed the right to judge with Christ? Well, let me just answer it this way. Daniel chapter 7, verse 27, says the Old Testament saints were. So the ones coming out of that Old Testament age up there. Matthew 19, 28 says the apostles were. They were given the right to judge as well with him. So... In the church age, the apostles. But more than just the apostles, 2 Timothy 2.12 says that all believers in the church age will. So now all of a sudden we have everybody from the Old Testament and everybody from the church age, everybody basically raptured at that point is going to have the right to be with their glorified body, serving with him on thrones, helping rule, whatever that means exactly. He's like, you have a responsibility. Here's what I need you to take care of. Do you got it? Got it, right? And then he moves to the next. And every one of us who trust in him glorified body 
ridden in on a white horse. He's dominated. We're absolutely ruling on a throne, responsible with him, helping take care of things. You and I, if we trust in Jesus Christ, are these people that have the authority to judge, and it was committed to us. Notice, though, he's not done. He says, also, what does that word mean? It means in addition. Here's another thought. Here's another group of people. I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. Those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their forehead or their hands. People who had died a martyr's death in the tribulation. See how that's after the rapture line? So now we have those who up to the rapture are, are going to be on the thrones. We also have those during the rapture or during the tribulation who have lost their life for Jesus Christ. Believers who were martyred. They're also now, in this moment, having the privilege of being on the throne. Notice it says right after that, they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. They came to life. Well, it doesn't mean spiritual life. We already know they're believers. It means physical life. They're now glorified as well. See, remember, look at the line there. The rapture is when everybody else has received their glorified bodies, right? So now, at this point, after the second coming, those who have been martyred during the tribulation, see how it's after the rapture? They're now getting their glorified bodies right there at the beginning of the millennium. And they're also reigning on their thrones. Us given the privilege of ruling with him. Please hear me. It isn't about your throne. My throne. It isn't about, see the fence post I'm on and how awesome I am. Do you remember this analogy? Right? We're turtles on a fence post. Right? Please, don't make a big deal out of your throne. Make a big deal out of the one who gives the thrones. We have a privilege of worshiping and serving him. That's what's going on here. They came to life and reigned with Christ. All of these groups of people, basically everybody in the tribulation all the way back, one group of people that we'll talk about in just a second, except them, are all reigning on the throne. And it says they reigned for how long? A thousand years. We're going to hear that word a lot, okay? They reigned for a thousand years. Really important for us to understand the grasp of this. Now, let me just say, have you noticed how we just read in a very plain sense what's going on? We see the word then, we see the word thousand years, so we see Christ coming, and then we see the kingdom being established, right? Do you see it? Very literally established. Just so you know, that's called the premillennial position. It means pre, right? Before the millennium. Christ is coming. Some of you are like, this is more systematic theology than I've ever had in my life. Like, just hang on for a second. It's really important that we talk about some of these positions because you need to be able to have a few answers for why you stand where you stand. The premillennial position simply says, I take a very plain read of what Scripture says. First Christ comes, then the kingdom. And man, is it going to be unbelievable. That's Scripture's read. Very plain, Okay. Now, there are other positions some have taken. One is the post-millennial position. It says, see where that second coming line is? Put it on the backside of the millennium, after it. First, there's going to be some awesomeness that we usher in as people, because you know how awesome we all are. I'm just saying. And then the second coming. Really? Well, what about Revelation 19 and then Revelation 20? Well, yeah, we have to go like this with those. So we're actually going to reverse the order of two chapters, claim they're out of line, and then we're going to start claiming that we, in our unbelievableness, are going to usher in perfection. I got a real problem with this position, okay? 
it starts to really mess with the order of scripture and it also starts to mess with the fact that things go very awry and Christ needs to step in and make an impact. That's what's going on. Be careful. The post-millennial position, it became really prominent in the Industrial Revolution and thereafter. There was a lot of great change and a lot of awesome uh, progress and it really seemed to start making sense until World War I and World War II and the Korean War and the Vietnam War and all the disruption everywhere that blew up in the last century and then it really started losing ground, okay? It became more of a pragmatic read of scripture. It seems like things are getting better rather than a plain read of scripture. I'll just say it this way. If the plain sense makes sense, don't look for any other sense. You ever heard that before? If the plain sense makes sense, don't look for any other sense, okay? That's how you end up with a very honest read like premillennialism, okay? One other position that's out there is amillennialism. And this is, ah, means like, no, right? Like if we say atheist, like theist means I believe in God. Atheist, I don't believe in God, right? So amillennialism, no thousand years, okay? What they're really saying is today, we're going to read this all kind of figuratively. And we're in the millennial kingdom today. That's what it's saying. Right now, we're in the millennial kingdom. The amillennial position is that. Um, Really? I guess my, I wrestle with this one, and I'm just going to ask a couple practical questions first, not that these close the door on it and make it obvious, but Satan is bound right now in a bottomless pit, sealed and shut off, and really? Or, or is he actually like a roaring lion seeking whom he might devour? First Peter 5. I would be very careful to say, well, this only means in one sense of the word is he bound. In every other sense, he's not. Really? He's in a bottomless pit, man. It doesn't sound good. Are we ruling on thrones right now? My throne ain't that good. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, I got some problems with the pragmatics of it. And I want to be careful because there are a lot of very great men who take this idea of reading figuratively. But I'll tell you what happens. Here's what they're doing. Is everything in the moment or past will read in the plain sense. Everything in the future, this prophetic element, will read in a very different sense, a symbolic sense. Be careful with that. When you start to change how you read scripture based on what you think it's talking about, you're going to end up with a little bit of a strange definition. In fact, ask an amillennialist or a postmillennialist, very honestly, if you just take a plain read of this, what do you get? Well, then you get premillennialism. Absolutely, they'll say that. They're not disagreeing that that's what you get when you do a plain read. They're disagreeing that you should. Don't read it plainly. Read it metaphorically. Okay, I want to challenge that. I want you to know Christ is coming. Future. Revelation 19. It's going to be unbelievably authoritative. Future. He is literally coming in on a white horse, which means victory. victory. He will be reigning. He will take over. He will absolutely establish a kingdom with Satan bound. And there will be a thousand years, the millennium, of him reigning and ruling. It will last how long? thousand years and that's what you get with a plain read of revelation 19 and 20 okay now notice what it says after it it says the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended the rest of the dead what in the world what's going on i got to tell you i literally had to stop and write it down to make sure i had it right but here's what's happening if you take a look up here the old testament age those people that died who believed in christ well their souls went to heaven in the new in the church age those who died and believed in christ well they went to heaven 
And in the tribulation, they died. Well, they went to heaven, right? And then we've got these glorifying periods at the rapture and the second coming. Those who didn't trust in Christ that died, well, they went to what's called Hades, kind of a temporary holding cell. That's the rest of the dead. Those are the ones not discussed yet. It's the unbelievers that are literally in Hades hanging on for another thousand years while Christ reigns on his throne in Jerusalem. That's the rest of the dead. It says, this is the first resurrection. The glorifying bodies, the being placed on the thrones, that's the first resurrection. Man, do we want to be a part of that. How do you know, Tim? Because the next verse says, blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. I'd like to be blessed and holy. How about you? It's a nice privilege. It's basically saying all who trust in Jesus Christ all the way through the tribulation, if you've ended up with him, you will be literally experiencing that first resurrection. What a privilege and a joy to experience. Over such, the second death has no power. What in the world is a second death? Well, the beauty of it is they tell us. Revelation 20 verse 14 says this is the second death, the lake of fire. How? Eternity separated from God Almighty. We don't experience the second death if we trust in him. But they will be priests of God and of Christ and they will reign with him for a thousand years. There we go again, right? Let's say it this way. Born once, die twice. Have you ever heard this phrase? Born once, die twice. So born once, like I was born physically, die twice. I die physically, but then I also die in the second death, hell. Born twice, like I was born physically and spiritually, die once. Physical only. No spiritual death, no eternal hell. That's where we're at. That's what's being described up through this position in verse 6. It's an unbelievable opportunity for us to grasp God in charge. Absolute justice. Him reigning. It's a part of his kingdom. Hey, have you ever gotten kind of fed up with the unfair? With the, you know, where you're looking at something or watching something, you're like, that is just so wrong. Have you ever been watching something about, say, one of your congressmen? And you're like, come on. I mean, I don't care what party you're with. Just say, I was so wrong. Can you just say that? I did nothing illegal. Dude, stop stepping on the line. Get, get off that line. Is it wrong or is it right ethically? Is this something you want to live up to as a position with authority? Seriously, right? It gets kind of sickening at times. Imagine a world, this is a quote now from a commentary. Imagine a world dominated by righteousness and goodness. A world where there is no injustice. Where no court ever renders an unjust verdict and where everyone is treated fairly. Imagine a world where there is, where what is true, right, and noble marks every aspect of life, including interpersonal relationships, commerce, education, and yes, even government. Imagine a world where there is complete, total, enforced, and permanent peace, where joy abounds and good health prevails, so much so that people live for hundreds and hundreds of years. Imagine a world where the curse is removed, where the environment is restored to the pristine purity of the Garden of Eden, where peace reigns even in the animal kingdom, so that the wolf will dwell with the lamb and the leopard will lie down with the young goat, Isaiah 11. Imagine a world ruled by a perfect, glorious ruler who instantly and firmly deals with sin. 
ruling with the iron rod, as it said in Revelation 19. That is the millennial kingdom. That's a thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ on his throne, us with glorified bodies on the throne with him, literally the privilege of watching amazing, amazing peace going on. Now, I do want to say this. There's a little bit of complication with what happens. We're going to talk about it in the next point. And we have to make sure that we grasp that not everything is totally perfect yet. But his kingdom is a kingdom earmarked with justice. And we can see it. Question. Are you ready to serve the high and holy? Are you ready to serve the one who deserves to be lifted up above all else? Are you ready to put your life in him and hope in him? That's our privilege. The one who has justice as an earmark of his kingdom. Point number two. Not just justice, but peace. Then Christ will defeat Satan once and for all. Then Christ will defeat Satan once and for all. Verse seven. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison. Can you imagine the moment when this happens? I mean, yes, we're told, and I still got to believe people are like, you're kidding me. Why are you letting him out? Right? Why is Satan being released? It says, and he will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Why is he released? Well, here's what we have to grasp. This is what's going on. In the tribulation, there's a point where all those who were believers that died, right? Their souls have gone to heaven. They end up glorified after the second coming and they're reigning. What about those believers at the end of the tribulation who are standing there going, can you imagine? Like the raptures occurred somewhere in there. They've seen everything happen. They don't trust in Christ. They're literally going, okay, I was wrong. I'm totally believing in who Christ is. I've given myself over to him. I'm amazed with who you are. And in that moment of their trusting, all of a sudden, there's this huge second coming. Jesus Christ comes roaring in, absolutely brings it. Everybody around him who isn't trusting him is wiped out. And they're standing there going, man, do I trust in you? Do you know what I'm saying? Living saints at the end of the tribulation, stepping over into the millennial kingdom. And Christ is saying, come be a part of this kingdom with me. They're not ruling and reigning. That's actually who's populating the kingdom. A ton of believers who have literally seen the wrath of God poured out and they're having a chance to be in the millennial kingdom. Now they have kids and they raise them and they try to share with them. And then they have kids and they have kids and people coming to Christ all over the place and some of them aren't coming to Christ. They're being ruled with an iron fist, so they're held in line, and there's no mistakes, and there's no lack of peace, but there's hearts that are not necessarily with Christ. How do you know that, Tim? Because Satan will be released from prison. He will come to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. How sad. They have lived for the thousand years with Christ, seeing him rule. They have had you and me ruling on our thrones with glorified bodies, doing whatever we're called to do in assisting him. They have seen some levels of perfection. They have watched Jesus Christ in his completeness. Satan pulled away, no deception. And still in the end, they say, no, I think this thing needs to be more about me instead. Now imagine children and children and children and there's less death and so there's more and more kids and the millions and the millions and maybe even the billions of people and 
They're like the sands of the sea who turn and say we're with him and run with Satan. It says that they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and they surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. Marched and surrounded. Hundreds of millions, billions, we're not sure of the number, drawing swords saying we are going to take it to these believers. We're going to rule this kingdom. Man trying to take over what is rightly God's. It's an amazingly pathetic moment. And in their rising up, notice who fights. It says, well, from fire from heaven came down and consumed them all. That's it. It's done. Notice again, just like in Revelation 19, we're doing no battle. Notice that just like in Revelation 19, it's all his. Notice that again, he is taking command and control and Sadly, it's absolutely no contest whatsoever. Fire from heaven came down and consumed them all. Literally, it's this. Hundreds of millions of people, drawn swords, charging at, get them! (laughs) Done. And everybody else going, whoa, that's authority. That's power. And everything has now been righted for the last time. All insurrection has ended, except one. And that gets taken place right now. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were. And they were tormented day and night forever. Man, this is painful stuff to read. We better grasp the sincerity of God's righteousness and holiness. We better grasp that he does call us to worship in a powerful way and that not trying to bring it our own way not a good picture hey newsflash there's a lot of teaching going on even in this area that hell does not last forever forever and ever when the plain sense makes sense don't look for any other sense be careful I'm seeing it last forever and it's pretty scary Tormented day and night forever. Thrown into the lake of fire. Like an entire vastness of nothing but heat and nasty smelling sulfur. That's what's going on. Punishment and torment as they're separated from the very presence of the love of God. Why is it a torment? I think that I could say that alone. All love removed. And that's the place. You know, there was a study done. Since recorded history, 3,530 years, only 8% of the time was there peace for a whole year. 286 years out of all of that where there was peace. 8,000 peace treaties were made and broken. Nasty amounts of war amongst humanity. Those 286 years were never really put together for more than a few years at a time. This is going to be 1,000 straight years of peace jesus christ ruling our king almighty bringing part of what he had planned still some tolerating of hearts who are against but making sure that the actions are staying in line that's the millennial kingdom as he rules with an iron rod here's my request to us may we seek peace spiritual peace for today romans 5 1 literally says that we are justified by faith and we have peace with God. 
through our Lord Jesus Christ. Spiritual peace, but a physical peace that's coming. We get a taste of it in the millennial kingdom, and then we get eternity after it. It's an amazing opportunity to see him at the helm. No resurrection, no insurrection tolerated. No insurrection tolerated. No chief rebel. All uprisings dealt with justly and swiftly. All courts tend towards peace and ease of heart and mind. Jesus at the helm for a thousand years. The millennial kingdom. Just a taste of our king will reign. Seek peace with him. Start today with the spiritual peace and go after it. The third step in his kingdom is righteousness. Righteousness. Then all believers will stand before his judgment. I got to be honest. I would love it if this section was not the third section in this chapter. So we didn't have to end here. It's harsh. It's direct. It's real. And it's our holy God. It says, then I saw a great white throne and him who seated on it. Him who was seated on it. A great white throne. Great. Like powerful. White. Like pure. And throne. Like there's decisions, perceptions going on there. The powerful, pure, perceiving moments of God seated on the throne. Who is seated on the throne? I just wrote this down real quickly. John 5.22 says, The Father judges no one, but he gives judgment to the Son. I think that alone probably locks it up that it's Jesus Christ sitting on the throne here. But we also see in Revelation 22 that this throne is the throne of God and of the Lamb. There's a sharing of God the Father and God the Son on this Lamb. And God the Father is handing it over and saying, go to it. You reign, bring it. Jesus is ruling. It's a scary moment. How do you know that, Tim? From his presence, the earth and sky fled away. And no place was found for them. The earth and sky fled away. You know, there are many who describe this. They would say, this is basically an absolute obliteration of all of creation. It's the removal of creation. He spoke it into existence and he speaks it out. John MacArthur calls it the uncreation. This is the moment where earth and sky end. And it's formidable. It says, and I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. I saw the dead, great and small. What kinds were standing before him? The dead of what kind? Great and small. I barely sinned at all. But I'm standing on my own. Not with Christ protecting me. I was the most horrible sinner of all. And I'm standing on my own. The dead, great and small, who choose to stand on their own before him. Standing before the throne and the books were open. I'm telling you, when those books are opened, not a good moment. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. Now let's make sure we understand this carefully. It says the dead here. But everybody else has been glorified bodies, right? So the dead who are left here are now those who refuse to believe in him. This is the unbelievers left. And they've said, I choose to stand on my own. I don't want you protecting me with your shed blood, Lord. I stand in defiance to you. And they said, great, welcome to the throne. That's what's going down next. So this is all the unbelievers standing before him. They will be held accountable for everything they've done. These books record their thoughts, their deeds, their hearts intents. Everything is evaluated. 
and that is where they're found guilty. Unfortunately, we already know the outcome. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. This is not a good moment. I, I pulled this out of a commentary describing the standing of the great and small before the great white throne. There is a terrible fellowship there. The dead, small and great, stand before God. Dead souls are united to dead bodies in a fellowship of horror and despair. Little men and paltry women whose lives were filled with pettiness, selfishness, and nasty little sins will be there. Those whose lives amounted to nothing will be there. Whose very sins were drab or mean, spiteful, peevish, groveling, vulgar, common, cheap. Those are the small. The great will also be there. Men who sinned with a high hand and courage and flair. Men like Alexander and Napoleon, Hitler and Stalin will be present. Men who went in for wickedness on a grand scale with the world as their stage and who died unrepentant at the last. Now one and all are arraigned and are on their way to be damned. A horrible fellowship congregated together for the first and the last time. Good gravy. <laughs> like if this isn't a sobering thought. Remember I said wake up call? Revelation 20 puts everything in order. And you can get jolted to an awakeness out of it. Notice what he says at the end. Death and Hades give up the dead. What is Hades? Temporary holding cell for hell. That's Hades. Hades will eventually be thrown into the final place of hell. It says right here. Death and Hades give up their dead and they were judged, each one of them according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. Temporary holding cell thrown into the permanent holding cell. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And it's forever. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Our God is a righteous God. May we never lose sight of that. Oh, hey, we love talking about the love of God, right? He is love. He lavishes upon us. He loves upon us. He is the serving God. He says, I've come to serve, not to be served. He says, I'm here for you. I am literally wanting the best for you. We love that Jesus, right? Bring it. Lavish it on me and polish up my throne a little bit. And, right? and we start making it more and more about us. And, but let me tell you, that love is nothing if it's not in perspective. And the perspective is this. That wrath that we just read about, that's what he took on himself at the cross for you and me if we trust in him. That wrath, that high and holy God making available for us a replacement that we don't ever need to be there. But instead could in that moment be worshiping him with glorified bodies, lavishing in the perfection and love of who he is, saying, I cannot believe you offered me that. Now that's an amazing God. Amen? As we read Revelation 20, and I'm telling you, there's a lot of detail to get caught up in. May we not lose sight of this. He is just. He is peace. He is righteousness. And our God will reign with that. Come worship Him for an eternity. Be lavished upon by him and pour it back out to him. Worship the king of kings, holy and lifted up. That's our king. Amen? That's our king. To be worshipped with all we've got. He is reigning. He is reigning today on a spiritual throne. He is reigning forever 
on a physical and a spiritual throne. And we can soak it up with all joy and all privilege as we lean on him. Lord Jesus, please forgive me of my sin. Use your shed blood to replace what I owe. May I be worshiping with you for eternity on thrones I have no business being a part of, in a heaven I have no business being a part of, because you are so amazing. Bring your heart to him. Lay it at his feet. Give him everything you've got. And I mean now. Today's the day for salvation. May we grab hold and drink deep. Because we get to worship him for all eternity. Let's pray.